0: This is A Becoming Creature. In this episode, I talk to Maybe Gray about sexuality, relationships, sex positivity, the legal system, and what it was like going to clown school. I hope you enjoy. I am your host, Nick, and I am here with the gifted, goofy, and glitteringly gorgeous e-girl, Maybe Gray. Maybe is a law student, a digital painter, a sex positivity advocate, a model, and she even does some clowning. Maybe, holy moly, hello.
1: Hi, thank you. That was an absolutely lovely introduction. You can't see me, but I'm totally blushing.
0: (laughs) So maybe... Can you tell me the story of your final workshop in clown school?
1: Oh, yeah, I would love to. My final workshop in uh, in my clown school, I got to present a, a whole new identity that I had lovingly crafted over three weeks of really like, intense, serious playtime. Um, and it was it was a really exciting moment I had a lot of my family come out to support me including members of my family who are absolutely terrified of clowns which was hilarious (laughs) um and I think my my favorite moment from the workshop um I had a, a, a big moment of failure and and in uh clowning failure is like a gift from the gods we say it's it's so exciting when when something doesn't go as planned i was um making different things out of a big giant fuzzy pipe cleaner and um at one point i was turning it into the golden arches of the mcdonald's sign and it Mm. wouldn't work and i got to look out into the audience and show them how upset i was that my pipe cleaner wasn't doing what i was trying to tell it to do and I I once I started failing I just milked it for everything it was worth I like struggled with that pipe cleaner for as long as the crowd would laugh at me and it was easily the funniest thing I had done all night and it was yeah such a I feel like that that moment was sort of um, in a nutshell what I took away from clowning uh, that um, there's this way in which we love each other at the the peak when we are failing and and that's totally upside down from how I saw the world going into clowning I thought you had to do really well all the time or people would judge you and and it turns out that people aren't that scary after all they actually are so happy to see you fail when they're able to share that with you in a loving way and and when you're open about it and I think it's really influenced uh my my love of vulnerability and being playful and just putting everything out there ever since.
0: That's really beautiful. And it says something about the lesson of improvisation and play and being open to the world, which I think cleanly segues into my next question, which is what is Baker versus Canada and why is reasonable apprehension of bias important?
1: this is such a great question um baker versus canada is a is a case that i i read for my administrative law course and it's crazy long i think it's like 80 pages long um but it 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 involves this concept called reasonable apprehension of bias which is uh Mm -hmm. basically to unpack that it's the idea that when there's somebody who's exercising government power and making decisions that affect your life, they need to be doing that on the basis of the power that they've been granted, um, rather than, uh, based on their own opinions or, uh, on their own whims or something like that. And in, in Baker in Canada, a woman was, um, like in danger of being deported. She was not a legal immigrant and, uh, she'd been living here for a long time and she had children here. And so she was applying for humanitarian and compassionate grounds to be allowed to stay in the country here with her children. Um, and, And the decision maker, rather than following the guidelines for the interpretation of our provisions on humanitarian and compassionate reasons to be exempted, of, from the immigration law, he he really was just judgmental of her. He was like, you have too many children, and you have too many mental health problems, and you've been on welfare for too long, and I don't want you or people like you to be in our country. And uh, I was really angry when I read it. It made me so upset. Yeah. Um, so when later in the case, um, it, it was held by the court that that behavior, uh, that that k- kind of reasoning created a reasonable apprehension of bias such that the decision could be sent back to be reconsidered. I I felt like it was one of the few ways in which the law really does represent the interests of the individual and fairness and justice and stuff like that. Um, So often it feels like the law is created by and for the people in power. And uh, Mm -hmm. it, it makes me really happy when there are actually some Principles that lawyers can use to try and protect individuals who might be the victim of unfair state action. Um, It's a long and a hard route to to help Mm. people using the law when the law is against them. But that was that was a part where I felt like maybe there is a soul to the profession. After all, if we can if we can help a mother stay with her children in the face of someone who judges her for their own, their own reasons that have nothing to do with the law they're supposed to be applying, then it, it feels like maybe there's little bits of justice hidden in the field.
0: Do you know what the outcome of that case was?
1: Um, it's interesting because the legal case just sends the decision back to be like – more appropriately reasoned. So mm-hmm. from reading the case, I don't know if Baker was allowed ultimately to stay in the country, but it's something that uh-huh. I, I really hope for. I really hope that she was allowed to stay because it w- it's absolutely what would have been best for her family. And it, either way, her story has become such a profound legacy. It is like an absolutely defining moment in Canadian administrative law. And uh, it, it, it really created a movement towards more robust procedural fairness requirements across all of the areas of uh, administrative decision making. So I would like to think that she's she still uh, was able to stay with her family.
0: I'd like to hear more on your thoughts regarding robustness. You've said if you go to law school, you learn how gross and vulnerable human civilization is, Laws are bad, states are bad, governments are bad. It's all a big, gross mess. Yeah. <laughs> In what way is it a mess? And it, we're talking about robustness. Is it improvable? Like, how does this work?
1: It's a, it's a difficult question. I think that um, I, I started law school when I was only 19 years old. And mm. uh, from from that perspective, it was really difficult to come across cases that dragged on for 15 years and ultimately um, didn't result in what I would have thought was a fair outcome. And it's hard to read cases about um, like horrible experiences of Uh, rape and sexual violence and have the 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 reasoning about the outcome of that focused on like statutory interpretation there is like a lack of humanity in it and that was my first impression of the field as i um continue to study i i try to avoid like falling into this cynicism there yeah there's this way that it's easy to become cynical it's easy to feel like the law is um there to confine you rather than to protect your freedoms and and there's certainly a lot wrong with it and it's it's a slow tool it it feels like it's often from a layperson's point of view the first place they go like that should be against the law and they think that that's how they could create positive social change. That's how I felt going into the field. Um, and it turns out that it's it's a it's a kind of clumsy solution to a lot of social problems. And it's given me a, a lot more respect and, and appreciation for grassroots movements that try to change things at the level of the individual experience of living out their lives rather than hoping that the government will create um parameters for other people's behaviors that make you feel safe and so it's like I I often get a little bit totalizing about the field it's been difficult for me to um to integrate the difference between the legal field as I saw it before I got into it and the way that it initially impressed upon me um, that that things were more complicated and patchy and incompetent. But I think there's, I don't know the word, I'm terrible at remembering like the the words for different fallacies and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it's something that I, I hear people go through all the time. If you, if you specialize in something, you realize that the field is more deeply flawed than, than you imagined uh, before you had that level of expertise. And it actually, it reminds me of when I was a little kid, um, there is this moment where my little sister had lost a tooth And she got a little note from the tooth fairy and I saw the penmanship and recognized it as my dad's. And in that moment, (laughs) I was like, Oh no, there's no tooth fairy and there's no Easter bunny and there's no Santa Claus. It just all kind of unfolded in one, one momentary realization. And that's how I kind of felt when I got into law school and realized that judges, we're right because they were last. They're the last person to have a say huh. in a situation and not necessarily because they are the absolute uh, paragon of expertise, of legal knowledge. Um, it, so much of law school is spent bitching with professors about the supreme court's judgments and how completely off base they are and that can be really really frustrating um and Mm -hmm. and so that kind of created this this whole other chain reaction of like oh if the law is imperfect then governments are imperfect then institutions in general are imperfect and oh wow all of all of these places in society i used to trust and and cohere with i no longer feel trust and coherence with. And so it's a it's an ongoing process of integration for me to to come to a place where I can recognize that and not write everything off, not throw the babies out with the bathwater.
0: I wonder if if we installed a benevolent tyrant for one year. Do you think that would actually help at all? I'm, I'm not saying like, you know, like, should we do this? But I'm saying could a, an individual, a benevolent individual actually improve the system or are the flaws just fundamental and um, people fall through the cracks?
1: It, it's hard to say. My 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 first instinct is that there's something inherent about the law that sides with power. It would be really difficult to create um like boundaries around power without creating marginalization I think if you're drawing mm-hmm. lines like if, if, if we've got borders and we've got crimes we've allocated power to some people and not to other people in ways that's going to have unintended perverse consequences um to try and like maybe level out my cynicism on that though I do think that there's uh, there's a great article by Sarah Perry called uh, gardens need walls and it's about how cultures rely on boundaries to have meaning and coherence and to mm. to think of like someone much smarter than me <laughs> who could be this benevolent tyrant and 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 lovingly craft laws as these walls to keep our gardens thriving and flourishing and um, mm. and, and allowing mobility so that you could actually move between different gardens and experiment with your life and decide what kind of culture you fit into or even leave space to create a culture of your own and have that be an option. I I can imagine um, that would be a huge improvement for society. I think that um, law as it is now is so rigid and, and if somebody could create a law that allowed a more permeable membrane between different cultures while still allowing for a sense of coherence and safety within the in-group, so to speak, that, that could be a really powerful change. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a lot to reflect on there, but I want to change over and start talking about emotions and you're one of the most bubbly people I've encountered on Twitter. Like for instance, during philosophers on Twitch playing flight simulator uh, which is hosted by Michael Kersey, you said that the way you prefer to approach life is like, I'm me. Isn't this so exciting?
1: <laughs>
0: it's- and yet in, in contrast to this, like I've seen your art on society six, which seems to exhibit like distress and sadness and anxiety.
1: Oh, wow. You've seen that. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> sorry yes continue
0: (laughs) you've also tweeted yeah no no No. but you've you've also tweeted about struggling with self-criticism and psychological self-harm I just wanted to know can you talk to me about how you've overcome negativity and how you think about um those emotions now
1: yeah it's it's funny that you should ask because it's uh totally the story underlying the maybe gray moniker um I have Ever Mm -hmm. since I was a little girl felt like I have a very black and white stark contrast to my personality and the idea of integrating this bubbly, um, girly, feminine, excited uh, version of myself with the version of myself that carries all the existential dread and trauma and pain uh, and getting them to play well with one another like like sisters who love each other is sort of the whole project of my Twitter experience mm. hoping to gray out this stark contrast in my personality and a lot of the time it has felt like purely aspirational like like this is the bar I've set for myself but I rarely even like reach very far for it. Um, but it, it does feel like over time I've been able to, accept that there are these kind of wild swings in my experience of things and be open about both sides without, without expecting consistency. And I think that that's something that I've learned about the the grayness in experimenting with trying to reach for it is that It could be more like a static, where there's little bits of white and black and and mid-tones, and they're all kind of scattered in this senseless random pattern, and when you step back, you see it as... A like warm comforting shade of gray with this sort of like iridescence and movement to it rather than maybe when i originally picked the moniker maybe gray i hoped i was going to end up in this like giant vast gray cloud that was like perfect and consistent and and cozy but this has its own sort of coziness that seems to represent whatever's deepest within me better
0: now I completely understand the maybe gray because it's gets to that negotiation and I actually really enjoy that I'm thinking about your art piece um about yin and yang which I think you called it yin sane <laughs> and that really gets to the difficulty of the, that negotiation right so so I really love that that's so thank awesome thank you <laughs> So I wanted to talk about relationships. Uh, regarding relationships you've said that people gotta understand that being smart or interesting or right isn't offering much if you refuse to be accessible. What did you mean by accessible? Like I interpreted it as a kind of connection. Right. Um but I wanted to know what you had to say about that.
1: Yeah, there's this way we're having like the laundry list of you know desirable qualities in a person uh it doesn't doesn't get through in in an intimate relationship unless your heart is genuinely open mm-hmm. and, and so often our hearts are closed uh because we've not really been taught to love ourselves and be able to share that love we've been mostly taught to try to get love and to avoid pain and to avoid maybe a little bit of responsibility for our feelings mm-hmm. now and then And so when we get afraid, mostly, our hearts get closed off and we react in ways that are controlling or resistant and we wall ourselves off and and people can't can't really reach us. We can't really receive their love even if they're trying to share it with us and we can't really get our love across to them even if we'd like to be able to share it. And so it feels like the most attractive thing that you can do in in a relationship is to work on your self-love so that your heart can be open so that in those beautiful moments when someone reaches out for connection there's not something in the way you know And, and and then whatever is beautiful about you has this freedom to 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 wander around and meet people and mingle um rather than having some sort of like I don't know the image that comes to mind is like a mercenary like you send a little mercenary self out and they're like making the rounds and looking for jobs but they're they're ready to attack and they're ready to defend at a moment's notice and that's not the kind of readiness that I hope to bring into a relationship but I want to bring the readiness to play and the readiness to Mm. explore and the readiness to cry and be intimate and have this like full range of emotion in the presence of another person and to accept their full range of emotion too there's like a numbness that i see in myself and in most people i know uh to to that level of openness and i i want to see us unnumb ourselves from that and be willing to experience ourselves and others in like our total uh our total emotional range and and lived experience,
0: yeah. what I'm getting from this is that, like being smart or, interesting, or right, that gets to being like attractive, and you're essentially saying that if you're unable to be intimate and connect, then what does being attractive matter? Like you're putting out these these signals, but it's it's for nothing if you don't have the self-love to open up and allow deep connection. And this is connected to some conversations you were having on the stoa, where you just discuss how eroticism and intimacy have a kind of inverse relationship. Um, For instance, as intimacy increases, often eroticism decreases. How can we exercise a healthy balance of eroticism and intimacy in our own lives. And I think just because they have an inverse relationship doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a lot of one or the other. Like there, there are degrees, right? Like you can have a relationship that is really erotic and really intimate or low in both. So there's a weird dynamic going on here. So how can we heighten our erotic side and our intimate side in our relationships?
1: Uh, I'm really influenced by Esther Perel uh, and her work on this and she advocates for creating uh, the space for eroticism within an intimate relationship by by allowing both parties in the relationship as much freedom as can be tolerated. So I, I feel like this plays into a little bit of why I choose to be polyamorous. Because mm-hmm. the idea that there's this um, agreement to limit your sexual exploration to one relationship actually dampens the eroticism of that relationship because it it limits the freedom of both of the people in it and it creates a sense of obligation that really stifles that flame that 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 makes you wanna I don't know take the relationship into those more sexual places, rather than the intimacy of taking care of each other, you're allowed to be in this um, erotic place where you're dancing with each other. And as much as you're sharing pleasure, you're able to be kind of selfish. I think that there's like a sort of selfishness that you need to be willing to have in a relationship. And you need to be confident that you can embody that selfishness without being rejected or judged. You you have to be willing to ask for what you want. And when your partner gives it to you, you need to be willing to take it. And there's a certain amount of separation that needs mm. to exist between you for an exchange like that to happen. It's like the idea of like trying to dance to somebody that you're like duct taped all the way around to. It's like, it would be right. very shuffly and awkward and no wonder it doesn't feel very sexy. You need to be given that like range of movement to come away from each other and then, and then rush back together and and have this kind of collision. That's so exciting. And I think that's difficult to do when You're looking for like unconditional complete love in one relationship. I think that the only relationship that can give you complete unconditional love in your life is your relationship with like a higher power or your spirituality, or your core self, or whatever your ontology allows for, like, that's the relationship where you can ask to be fulfilled completely. In every other relationship, you need to be able to give a little bit of space, a little bit of mystery in order for eroticism to continue to thrive.
0: That's really rich. I've never thought of it that way, that The only way to get the love that we truly want is essentially from ourselves. And that's what we're cultivating when we're exploring spirituality, which I am I want to get more into that a little bit later, but I want to continue talking about Polly a little bit. So I want to touch on what you're talking about regarding being taped to another person rather than having that autonomy. And you've said, I just don't feel ethical about closing a relationship unless everyone involved understands that commitment is freely chosen and totally negotiable at any point in the future. You also say that in monogamous relationships, you often see a lot of weaponized morality. So my question is, what is the interplay between commitment and autonomy? Because a lot of people, I think, assume that it's another inverse relationship right that more freedom means less commitment and how can we have relationships from a place of integrity and morality when we're considering this commitment and autonomy
1: what comes up is the difference between um being giving and being compliant if you have something that you want to freely offer, like that kind of a commitment. And, and that is something that lights you up. and, And it makes you feel amazing. And you just can't imagine wanting anything more than exploring this one relationship to the absolute depths that you can take it. I think that's amazing. And that's beautiful. And if somebody wants to go on that journey with you and they're bringing mm-hmm. that same level of enthusiasm and excitement. That's fantastic. And I think that there is absolutely like a, a huge range of autonomy and freedom that can be offered within a relationship structure like that. But to the extent that being with a single person is not truly what you like are the most turned on by, like genuinely to agree is to be kind of compliance to give yourself up a little for fear of being rejected in that relationship i think that there's like a dance that would more naturally happen in people's lives between these different kinds of relationship structures if they were both accepted as ethical options for relating to other people in an intimate way i think that um there's there's a time for exploring and learning from as many people as you can build a connection with and there's a time for committing and building with a with a partner something that's going to be a foundation for a life together and maybe on one end of the spectrum polyamory is more suitable and on the other end of the spectrum monogamy is more suitable and maybe there's kind of custom builds that can lie in the center and, and fit for people at different times in their life. But I think that that's, that's where it, what it comes down to for me is that if you're going to be in a relationship and you're going to have a, have a structure for that relationship, it should be the structure that makes you feel like you are honoring your deepest desires, whatever they mm-hmm. may be with total transparency and and, and not not thinking that that's going to be the same every day. That <laughs> It's right. funny that in I hear all the time about the lazy poly couples who are like functionally monogamous because today they wake up and they don't want to date somebody else. They just want to date their partner that they're in a primary relationship with. And that's fantastic. And I think that that would be my my hypothesis is that that would be the norm for most people if if relationship structures were seen as fluid and flexible and and designed to serve you in your ethical relationships with whichever people you decide to relate to, rather than having this idea that there's one ethical relationship structure and you need to fit yourself into it no matter what point in your life you're at and what your goals are and what your desires are. I don't see that functioning as well for people. And I see it creating a bunch of strange areas of blame and control and resistance that ultimately they fold the relationships in on themselves. They sort of narrow all of that lovely space for dancing and autonomy and duct tape you together and then you're all awkward. And then the relationship doesn't last. And I'd love to see relationships like thrive and last and be fluid and create a sort of kinship, create a sort of sense of family that I feel like is so hard to find in in modernity.
0: <laughs> yeah, what I'm getting from this is essentially, uh, that it's kind of like a, like a contract the society has, right? Where, um, we're presuming we're going around presuming the way other people want to have relationships. And that creates a kind of rigidity and inflexibility when in reality, um, The real problem is, is ultimately low communication. Now, for instance, if I have an anxiety or an insecurity that I have not resolved, then I might say, you know, hey, I don't want you to say this to me, it's going to trigger me. And then my um, SO in this case could either accept that or reject that, and make a choice. But the problem is that many people in society aren't having that conversation. They're not saying, this is how I think about monogamy. This is this is the way I want my relationship to go. And instead of having that mature conversation, they are defaulting to what society says, and then perhaps their preferences are actually different, and then they're in the problem of low communication, low integrity, wanting something that they're not getting, And that is um, extremely burdensome and difficult and painful.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think that on legal and moral and social levels to have a dominant culture that demands a single relationship structure actually impedes our ability to have a communication even with ourselves about how we really feel and what we really want and what makes us feel safe and what makes us feel loved and alive and what helps us, you know, bring the gifts that we have been given and, and share them with the world. I think that um, I remember when I first started being poly, I was just, I was so sensitive about sharing my partner and so much of it was just bare programming. It was this idea that if he's on a date with somebody else, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm boring. And none of that is true. None of that is necessary to feel and, and the, the fact that I had been kind of conditioned from outside of myself to have these sort of negative feelings about giving my partner their own space and their own freedom and letting them make their own choices about their own bodies, which just is so important to me. It, it frustrated me so much that I had been kind of emotionally molded into somebody who would find that painful and oh, it just feels like that should be the most joyous thing in the world to love somebody and allow them to be themselves. And if that's monogamous, if that's, if that's like, oh, I just love like like letting the person that is my beloved be the center of my life. And, and I never feel the urge to stray. That's beautiful. That's lovely. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just the idea that that should come from that inner conversation with yourself about your deepest desires. And it should exist with like total freedom to the other person. And if they choose the same deepest desires as you from their own inner conversation, that's fantastic. But I, I, I just would really love to see relationships coming from that place of like inner exploration and, and mutual exploration rather than following this like script that, that society says this is the only way to do this.
0: Right. You are a sex positivity advocate. My central understanding of sex positivity is, uh, as you once said, don't yuck a yum. Sex positivity seems to struggle against what hate called the purity foundation, which is to say disgust. Um, how should people think about this? Like, how should people think about sexuality and disgust and um, sex positivity.
1: I think that um, sex positivity for me is something that has to do with like safety. I think that we're all sexual beings and to have this blanket taboo that, that nurtures and perpetuates disgust about this like normal functional part of being an embodied creature is really dangerous and I have I have been hurt because of it I have you know suffered sexual violence and I've been it's been very clear to me how the norms that put this blanket over sex or brush it under the rug and does don't want to look at it creates these very dangerous spaces for people of any sort of gender presentation or sexual orientation
0: Mm. and so
1: for me um really if if it weren't for this blanket sex negativity i might be a sex neutrality advocate that you you can be disgusted by certain kinds of sex acts and you can be really attracted to other kinds of sex acts and that's a totally normal functional way to live um and and you don't need to fit into a sexual positivity movement to be part of this sexual positivity advocacy. I think that it's, it's more about peeling back that blanket negativity and taking a look at what's underneath it with some like frankness and some joy. (laughs) Like, and, and when I talk about not yucking yums, I mm-hmm. think that it's about it's about the way that we enjoy this space together. There's this uh, magical sexual energy that we're all kind of partaking in. And when you see somebody participating in that in a way that doesn't appeal to you, you can just leave that be. You don't have to say anything about it. You can just allow them to be in that space. That's not something that Is threatening to you, and I think that's that's what this disgust feeling is about. Is like you think about what else is disgusting, like uh, creepy bugs that might be in your food, or somebody Mm -hmm. you know sneezing or eating their boogers. Like these are things that. we we feel disgust about because they're dangerous to us. There's something, some sort of physical threat that's present when we're feeling disgust. And, and, or sometimes it's like a social disgust because it's associated with a social threat. And I I feel like that's a a, a feeling that's been just terribly overgeneralized. So much of sex is not dangerous. And so much of the disgust towards sex is dangerous. And I think that we need to like- create some nuance and go back through everything uh, in, our, in ourselves and in our relationships and in our societies and cultures and actually look through and say, what does what safe sexuality look like? And where can I give people autonomy in their sexual lives that enables them to have pleasure and safety as they develop as a sexual being? I think that that's something I'm just, I'm just so passionate about.
0: As we're talking about safety and danger, this makes me think about um, like the, the hookup culture, which seems to invite a lot of, uh, of danger in and of itself. And you've mentioned about moving culture towards more positivity and, and away from hookup culture, if I understood it correctly. Uh, can you speak on hookup culture? What do you think about it? And um how can we move towards a better society regarding our sexual relationships with one another?
1: I think that hookup culture is is dangerous in the sense that um, it, it takes sex really lightly and mm. it doesn't prioritize sexual communication to the degree that I'd like to see. I don't think there's anything wrong with having sex with somebody you don't know particularly well or only having sex with somebody one time and then not continuing a relationship. Those aspects of hookup culture are not particularly troubling to me. The problems that I have about it remind me of a Visa Con Views tweet um, that everybody wants to be fuckable and nobody really wants right. to fuck. You know, it's like hookup culture to me is this practice of maybe racking up sexual encounters as some sort of like uh achievement um like as if it's like a game without having a, a, an adequate level of communication with yourself and with the partners that you're engaging with sexually and and i think that it it's a it's an arena for a lot of self-exploration and spiritual exploration that hookup culture doesn't really touch on very much And I've seen it, um, I've seen it really hurt people uh, in their relationships with themselves. I've seen people, you know, create this life for themselves where they've you know, had so many sexual experiences and so little sexual fulfillment, so little self-connection to share with other people in those sexual spaces. And and that's my problem with hookup culture. Um I, I think another problem I have with hookup culture actually is that so much of it is mediated through these dating apps, which are mm. terribly exploitative of everybody involved and create some really horrible self-esteem problems. Um, especially Especially in men, I think, but certainly in women too. Uh, I think that it's really difficult to be presenting yourself as a sexual option via a handful of photographs and some like answers to cheesy questions. Um, it's it's not it's not this sort of exploration that I would have ever seen coming as a little girl. I remember sitting on the bus and looking at each person on the bus and thinking, oh, you know, this is something that stands out to me about that person as really beautiful. And that was such a like natural, sensual way of looking at sexuality in the world and looking at real life people I was present with and, and thinking oh maybe that's somebody that I could share a love connection with this idea that all of that has been tucked away into these little profiles and put on your phone for you to decide with your thumb it uh, it just seems like so low resolution and I, I would love to see us create norms that bring us back to, more spontaneity and, and authenticity and openness to finding love wherever we are in our lives, rather than going to the the little box on your phone for dating.
0: So we're talking about sex and communication. And what this really makes me think of is uh, one of the biggest e-girls in our circle. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Aya recently wrote that for me personally, asking for consent before sex is a huge turnoff. I found that to be kind of a a shocking statement to make to several thousands of people. What do you think about that?
1: I think that there is a way that the consent discourse is trying to compensate for the perils of hookup culture in a way that is superficial Mm. and ultimately ineffective. I think that the problem that I have, I mean, uh, for one, I can totally see where I is coming from in that, like, it's it can kind of ruin the mood to make it explicit like that. Sometimes sex is all in the subtext, and you're leading up to it, and it's delicious. And then someone says, "Want to have sex?" and it's like, "Oh, come on!" You <laughs> it, it, like it's like all the air coming out of a balloon or something like that. Um, but but the reason that it feels like that to me is that. This is this is a kind of communication that's supposed to be happening within your own body and within the partner's body and within the the that tension between you. And to to have a culture in which people are disconnected from that deeply embodied conversation with themselves and the other, and just band-aid that with like explicit requests for consent. I don't know that we can meaningfully consent from that level of disconnection. And and to to ask in a moment in this transactional way like do you consent to this? It it feels like it reduces the sensitivity and the um the continuity of a sexual experience. I think that what what seems natural to me is that consent is communicated physically in such a physical context. I would like for a man to know that I was consenting or for a woman to know that I was consenting based on my body language, because that's the language that we're speaking when we're entering this kind of sexual space. Um, to make it verbal to make it explicit brings it up into the head and it, it creates this disconnection on the part of the person asking for consent and the part of the person who's like in, in a position now to explicitly verbally give or deny consent it, it doesn't feel like it's quite getting to the heart of what is safe and unsafe about a sexual encounter it oh at, at its worst and I, I feel maybe a little bit like, I, I regret saying it this way, but it is how I feel about it. It it can seem like covering your ass a bit, like yeah. you said. You said you consented, and yeah. it 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 absolves you of your responsibility for fully engaging in that embodied conversation. Um, and and, and I think that it could actually do more to erode and erase the boundaries that we naturally have around our sexual experiences rather than protect and, and accept those boundaries. So I, I can see why the consent discourse doesn't ultimately solve the hookup culture problem.
0: Right. So it sounds like what we really want in a sexual relationship is erotic resonance Um, But I feel like the the problem here is especially in hookup culture, right? Because people are with a person and they don't know if that other person has a certain emotional nuance or emotional intelligence. And especially when alcohol is in play, which it so often is, especially in hookup culture, I feel like that kind of changes the balance. And I I do feel like this um, consent discourse is a cope for that. Um, how do you think of that? Do you, do you think that this is a kind of guardrail for when judgment in inhibition is, is reduced and, uh, people are in more dangerous situations?
1: Yeah, I do think it's, it's sort of a cope. And I think that it, it, it brings in this kind of legalistic feeling to it too. Like it, there's, it, it, it sometimes feels like consent discourse shifts the conversation from um morality and intimacy to legality and um Mm. that that doesn't feel good to me it feels like um it, it feels like it falls perfectly into the sort of janky dysfunctional system of a hookup culture though like the idea that you're going into um, a sexual encounter to meet the needs of your own ego with little regard for the the needs of your body and the needs of your heart and your spirit and any of those things on the other person's end as well Um, and then just being like oh let's check the consent box off so that I don't get in trouble later it feels very um it feels like you're using each other it feels like you're not really even looking for the kind of connection that sex is all about in my opinion and I think that there's this way that if if we could step away and look at the big picture it would be really clear to us that this isn't love that this is falling into a sort of consumerism of each other um, that that Mm. that's maybe, uh, you know, emerging from our consumerism of everything else in our lives. And I think that the cope discourse kind of covers how so many of the things in our life that could be bringing us joy and passion are instead being used to escape the need to explore ourselves and get to know ourselves and take responsibility for our own emotions and desires and all of that.
0: From where I sit and knowing a lot of guys, I have to wonder like how much kind of trust we're putting into very clumsy men. (laughs) You know what I mean? and. I gotta, I gotta ask you, like, what do you think that guys don't really know about the female experience and dating and relationships that they really should know?
1: I, I think that the number one thing that gets lost in this, like, gap between the cultures of the gender war and that kind of thing is that our bodies are actually all made of the same parts, just organized a little bit differently in the words mm-hmm. of uh, Emily Nagoski, um, who wrote Come As You Are, which is another book that's like a tremendous influence on me. And and, and I think that that's like, like it's it's such an important, such a resonant thing to, to meditate on, this idea that all of our bodies are normal, beautiful, mm-hmm. sexual bodies. And we, all of us, as part of our embodied experience emerge with these, these desires for sexual interplay with one another um, for, for the most part. And I think that there's like this, um, and I I don't know, maybe, maybe I will get feedback from men uh, who hear this, that points me in a different direction. But the sense that I get is that men believe that they want sex with women and that women, don't really want it quite the same way with them. They feel mm-hmm. like they're fighting some sort of maybe an uphill battle um as if women aren't such sexual creatures or their motivations for sex are different or their bodies are very foreign and confusing. And and really I think um I think that I I feel like men might relax a little bit if they realized that that women in their sexual experiences are not that different from you we like masturbating and fucking and playing and teasing and flirting mm. and sexting and all of those things bring us tremendous joy and pleasure and they make us feel good about ourselves and th- i I think that we could share in that as friends. <laughs> we could be like meeting each other at the same level and recognizing that everybody has the same sort of goals to find love and acceptance and play and pleasure. And it doesn't have to be such a loaded space in your life. Like right. you don't, your self-worth isn't at stake uh your your sexual being is not at stake it's it's just an exploration it's just a big playground that that we're all in and we're all invited to explore and 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 there's there's not something that's like spectacularly wrong with you personally that makes that playground inaccessible
0: so we're talking about masturbation and, and pleasure And uh, the interaction of the relationship and OnlyFans is very controversial these days with with some people. I think it gives people that want to do sex work uh, a safe way, for the most part, to interact with their clients. Um, Instead of the one-way consumption of porn, it gives people the ability to interact with a real person and, and kind of crush on them. Um, some say that it increases the persistence of atomization and loneliness, though. And you've said that we desire porn because we're starving and malnourished in our sexual lives. And this made me think about Anthony DeMella, who was a Jesuit priest and a psychologist who confessed to struggling between helping people with their psychology, help them with their pain and suffering versus letting them kind of hit rock bottom so they would finally have the motivation to give up their unhealthy attachments. Um and I, I always think about that kind of problematic dichotomy between like being a psychologist that's trying to help somebody get midway versus letting them really completely fail so that they can recognize that desire is the fundamental problem here. What do you think about like the consumption And production of porn in the context of living a good and healthy life. Since you were talking about um, porn, for instance, can be a substitution for a quality relationship.
1: I, I love the connection between um, the problems of porn and Anthony DeMello's work. I love Anthony DeMello's work. Uh, He's like so snarky and delightful. And um, one of the things that he says is that like, in spirituality, we often um, speak of growth in terms of waking up. And he talks right. about how waking up sucks when you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, five more minutes. You know what I mean? And, and that's how we are about spirituality too. It's hard work. Waking up is hard work. Growing up is hard work. And there's so many points at which you're not really going to want to do it. And the work of waking up is made so much more difficult by the tremendous availability of super stimulus of Any kind. I am just recently giving up a seven year addiction to smoking weed. And that was the thing that I would go to all the time to numb out to get pleasure for free, to get that instant gratification to make my personality feel manageable, all of those kinds of things I found in one place. And for some people, Porn is their super stimulus of choice that they rely on and create a relationship that numbs them and keeps them safe for themselves rather than allowing opportunities for growth. And so, in ways, I do think that OnlyFans can create some uh, of a step up, like maybe a sort of training wheels way of bootstrapping yourself out of a porn addiction, where you are humanizing the object of your desire to a greater degree, Mm -hmm. and maybe allowing yourself to see them as a sexual being rather than a sexual product that you're consuming. Um, And at the same time, it's true that when you're trying to limit addictive tendencies, having training wheels can sometimes be less helpful than falling off the bike. Uh, right. again and again and again until you're like, okay, something's going on off balance here. What what can I look at inside myself and learn and grow from so that I can uh, achieve something more balanced and forward moving? And so it is a really difficult, it's a really difficult area. And it's an area where I don't believe that there's a ton of generalizable advice. I think that for all of us in all of our addictive tendencies, it's a it's a tremendously personal journey and uh, it's a journey where you might have to try and try again you might have to try 15 20 x whatever different things before you find something that really works for you and so i would never advocate for any of these things to be you know like blanket banned I wouldn't think that porn should be blanket banned because for some people, it's not their super stimulus of choice. It's just their super stimulus of, you know, occasional enjoyment. Like I um, can have a glass of wine and I can really enjoy it. And that's not appetitive for me the way that weed was. And so I wouldn't want wine to be banned and I wouldn't want weed to be banned because for some people that's their wine and then porn is the same thing I think that if you know Tuesdays is porn night for you and you enjoy it and then the rest of the week you you fantasize on your own and you get to know yourself through masturbation or you have Uh, in-person sex with another person or you hire a cam girl if there's a bunch of variety and exploration and enjoyment and self-growth then it's fantastic and you can incorporate whatever you want into into your experiences in that sense Um, but it is just something that i think people have to be really frank with themselves what is it that i am sacrificing when i am allowing something to be my cope, my crutch, my go-to for sexual pleasure or numbing myself or managing my emotions. and there's no way to there's no way to make anybody look at themselves in that real frank light. there's no way that we can genuinely help each other um, we can create a supportive environment for our friends and we can share our experience and offer our thoughts when they are solicited from us, from our friends. But ultimately, it is such a personal thing that everybody is on a journey of helping themselves grow and waking themselves up and getting out of their own bed. And 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 it's, it's the bed that you make and it's the bed that you have to sleep in. So it's about it's about honoring yourself and loving yourself and wanting the best for yourself um and, and I guess that's part of why I, I I I bristle a little bit when there's a sense of blame as if only fans creators are like in all cases enablers of porn addiction or something like that uh it it's it's not the job of Pornhub, and OnlyFans to implode to make your spiritual journey easier. Unfortunately, even when sometimes you might have thoughts like that, um, it, it wouldn't make you happy. If, you're, if your crutch just exploded and you couldn't use it anymore and you didn't go through the journey of actually reflecting on what that was doing and what that work was in your life, it, it doesn't really bring you the kind of fulfillment that you're that you're imagining that it would
0: so speaking of OnlyFans uh and performing and revealing oneself i want to circle back to your experience with clowning talk to me about your experience with your clown dancing drills and what should we learn from them about uh interacting with the world
1: I think this is really interesting. I think that's like very related to the sorts of discussions we've been having about sexuality here. Mm-hmm. Um, in clown dancing drills, one thing one thing I'll say is that I actually, as soon as we started talking about this, I like got up and started moving just like instinctively. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, clown dancing drills. I'm going to do those while we talk now. Um, I think that the, the beauty of the clown dancing drills is that um, they tended to operate at the level of like totally free movement. Uh, I think, oh, was it was it Harvey Krishna who talked on your show about the yeah. idea that the word dance can be limiting in its own self, yeah. like people think of choreography or looking cool at the club. And really it's just about like completely free expression through the movement of your body. And so right, clowning exactly. is very much it doesn't, it doesn't look like dancing from from the colloquial sense that you might have of it. It's like completely wild and crazy and free. And when you do a clown drill, often you're given a body part who's given, like, the voice for a certain part of the dancing. So, like, uh, maybe you'll be invited to dance with your elbows and your elbows are in charge and your elbows say the way that you're going to dance. And what's amazing about it is you might not know if you've never tried it, but your elbows are very opinionated and your toes are very opinionated and your thighs and your knees and your ears, everything has an opinion. Your whole body is willing to have this insane and crazy conversation with you. And when you're getting in touch with that through the clown drills, you can bring that into your experiences of life. Like, Sometimes you might end up being in a bad mood, and you wonder, hmm, which part of my body is in a bad mood? What do they need to feel better? I can have a conversation on this like, part by part dialogue with my body, and uh, create space for myself to express myself and enjoy my embodiment in in all of the situations of my life. I don't have to sit clenched with my tongue pressed to my palate and my jaw tight and like my Mm -hmm. my brow furrowed in front of a screen all day without noticing how my body feels about that I can like check in and have a conversation and in in the world of sex that's another place where you're having that conversation with every part of your own body and every part of another person's body. And that can be so joyous and surprising and dynamic. Right. And when you maybe like, I don't know, when you don't think about the world that way, maybe you're having sex. That's like this kind of missionary style, mostly like genital focus, like pumping away until you're done. <laughs> and that's <laughs> like, It's a little bit sad, like it's not it's not the joyous dance uh, and and glowing expression of your desire and your enjoyment of each other. Um, And when you allow your entire body to have a voice and participate in a sexual experience, you can you can share so much more with each other and you can surprise yourself like crazy. And I just can't say enough about how good it feels to put yourself in spaces where you surprise yourself. It's such a great feeling.
0: Huh? You know, I'm, I'm thinking about, I feel like there's a lot of different ways to frame this, but I feel like one way to frame this is to think about a specific focus in terms of a kind of mask and mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of like you're you're masking the rest of your body when you're when you're giving the lead to a specific form of your body and this makes me think of the time that you said um, on Kersey's show you said uh, the the clown nose is the smallest mask right and it seems to me that your um not safe for work all multi is a kind of mask too like it's a different persona so how do you think of masks being um, expressed versus perhaps being not masked? And how should we think about masks in general? Like, well, what's your take here?
1: Uh, well, one thing is that uh, the the clown novice might be the smallest mask, but mm-hmm. you can always wear an imaginary mask. Your mask doesn't have to literally exist in real life. You can be totally naked and try on all sorts of different masks. Um, and, and, and that's something that really evokes different sides of your vast and multifaceted personality. The, the brilliance of, of, of masks that do exist, that you do put on, is that they can be any kind of clothing, any kind of hairdo, any kind of face paint, any kind of makeup, any kind of literal mask. All of those things, when you are receptive to them, can bring out something new in you that becomes very accessible and easy to channel once you develop a sort of vulnerability that allows for that when you're when you're willing to be changed by the mask that you put on whether it's literal or figurative then you can you can kind of be a limitless person, a limitless being. There's no end to what your personality can like shift. And you're like water. You'll take the shape of the container that is your mask. And you get to explore whichever shapes you like in that sense.
0: I love that. Maybe, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I have a bunch of more notes on, on magic and tarot and buddhism and religious studies that we didn't get to so maybe i'll hold on to those for a part two sometime i'd love that would you like to tell the audience where they can find you where they can find your work um anything you you might want to boost
1: Yeah, I'm mostly accessible on Twitter as maybe gray. Uh, That's gray with an A. Uh, Some people spell it differently, but I love the aesthetics of may and gray matching. Um, the the big thing that I have kind of coming up is I'm doing my debut Interintellect Salon on uh January seventeenth. And that's going to be all about unnumbing ourselves and taking responsibility for the experience of our whole emotional range through vulnerability. Uh and and I'm really excited about it. Uh I, I've been so appreciative of Anna Gat. She has been really Supportive and encouraging about bringing my work to her venue and I think that the salons are just so open and lovely and it's such a such a regenerative place to have a discussion and bring people together. Uh, on issues that they really care about and want to explore more so I'd love to to see people there Um, I think it'll be really fun and other than that I I always post the things that I'm up to on Twitter so if you follow me there you can watch my space and see see where I go see what I do next because I don't know I'm going to be surprising myself for sure
0: Well, thank you so much, Maybe. I learned a lot and you gave me even more to think about. So uh, this has been a growth experience for me and I look forward to checking you out at that salon. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you. I've had just an absolute blast.
0: For more episodes, check out becomingcreature.substack.com. Go to interintellect.com to sign up for Maybe's talk on January 17th. Thank you to Frank I.V. and Murphy Chicken for the music, and I will see you next time.